Section number six of G.K. Chesterton's newspaper columns. The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's newspaper columns. The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End, Bolshevist versus Jacobin, by G.K. Chesterton. There is now no little talk about suppressing communist literature. If the intention be to discourage people from being communists, it would seem more advisable to circulate it. At least my own potential sympathy with socialism, which was once very great, and my potential sympathy with socialists, which is still very great, are proof against almost anything except the study of their literature. All else I can endure, but that is too much for me. Show me a Bolshevist murder, and I can think charitably and sympathetically of the people I myself have been tempted to murder. Also, I can think that good men, as well as bad men, have been tyrannicides. Show me a Bolshevist massacre, and I can recall the moods when I have mildly wondered why there were not any English massacres. I can also recall, again in a more serious spirit, that the revenge of a mob has sometimes been a sort of wild justice. But show me a Bolshevist pamphlet, and my sympathy is strained to its breaking point, and breaks at last. Every popular instinct I possess, every drop of blood I inherit from people who worked or played or sang or fought or were free, rises in revolt against the thing, against its long words and long-winded expositions, its superciliousness, and its sectarianism its jargon of popular science that is neither scientific nor popular. Its admirers think it unanswerable, because it is unreadable. But when I say that socialist literature is the best answer to socialism, I do not merely refer to the dusty pamphlets to which this description applies. It is the paradox of the position that this is even more true of the socialist work that is well-written and well-worth reading. I am far from intending to imply that the whole of literary Bolshevism is bosh. Some of it is bosh enough in all conscience. When the theorists talk about internationalizing Ireland, or when they talk as if the Polish populace was a proletariat, or when they say that fairy tales give too favorable a picture of princes and princesses, or when they say that religion is the opium of the people, they are certainly talking bosh. But some of them do write in a lucid, intelligent, and philosophical style. And the interesting point of the position is this. The more lucid they are, the more they show that their policy is really a policy of slavery. The more intelligent they are, the more intelligible they make their policy of slavery. The more philosophical they are, the more fully they reveal that it rests on a philosophy of slavery. In The Liberator, the Bolshevist organ in America, appear articles by a very interesting and capable writer named Floyd Dell. And he wrote an article recently on a comparison between the Russian Revolution and the old French and American revolutions, which interested me very much. The most interesting point about it is this, that it definitely pitted the Russian Revolution of Trotsky against the French Revolution of Danton or the American Revolution of Washington. It did not tell the Bolshevists that they were treading in the glorious tracks of the Jacobins, or even that they were completing the unfinished work of the Jacobins. It practically told the Bolshevists that they were fighting against the Jacobins. Mr. Floyd Dell has thought his way deep enough into the realities of the thing to see 
that the Russian Revolution is really as much the enemy of the French Revolution as revolutionary Russia is now the enemy of Republican France. The first form his argument takes is to reproach the old Republican movements with their failure to give men their own boasted gifts of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He has no difficulty in showing that in the modern industrial world, life has often meant death by starvation, liberty enslavement by sweaters, happiness the most dismal and mechanical life endured by men. This argument is perfectly sound as far as it goes. I have myself used this criticism of the revolution in reply to its own criticism of the church. If Christian ideals have been soiled in the course of 18 centuries, liberal ideals have been even more soiled in the course of one century. But when Mr. Dell goes on to say that where the republic failed, the Soviet will now succeed, it becomes necessary to remind him of recent facts. Soviet ideals have not merely failed or been soiled, but have been openly and avowedly abandoned. And that not even in the course of one century, but in the course of one or two years. After all, the Republican ideals of Jefferson and Robespierre never failed quite so abruptly and absolutely as that. Washington did not have to announce, during his first presidency, that America was once more a monarchical country. Lenin did definitely announce that Russia is once more a capitalist country. Robespierre's republic did not have to fill its official posts with English dukes and Prussian princes of the blood because it could not work without the old aristocracy. Trotsky does give the great commercial and agricultural concessions to all sorts of foreign capitalists because he cannot work without the old capitalism. The American state is a hundred years old and has not yet seen an actual restoration of the British king or the German king. The Soviet state is hardly four years old and has already seen a restoration of the oil king or the steel king. This is as true on the good as on the bad side of the recent compromises and concessions of the Soviet government. The Jacobins were not forced to allow the Wendian peasants to keep their feudal nobility in defiance of the whole Jacobin theory. The Bolshevists have been forced to let the Russian peasants keep their private property in defiance of the whole Bolshevist theory. And the Wendians were only a small minority of Frenchmen while the peasants are a great majority of Russians. Lenin and Trotsky have first been forced to retreat before the little capitalists, and have then actually sought refuge in invoking the help of the large capitalists. This is the success of pure communism, which Mr. Floyd Dell contrasts with the failure of the great French and American republics. Even then he only professes to prophecy, and he predicts the immediate success of something that has already failed, and even confessed its failure. But the most interesting point is this. The Bolshevist writer is not content with blaming the old revolutionists for having failed to give men freedom and happiness. He actually goes on to blame them for having tried to give men freedom and happiness. At least he goes on to explain that freedom and happiness are not the Bolshevist ideals or those by which we must judge Bolshevism. And when we read on with a natural curiosity to discover what is the Bolshevist ideal, the first thing that meets our eye is the ominous word discipline. And our first comment on it is obvious enough. For that ideal, we have no need to travel all the way to Russia. We could find it at least a day's journey nearer home, in the place called Prussia. For the religion of discipline, we had no need to wait for Russia after the war. It was found in its perfection in Prussia before the war. And the more we study, 
this really sincere and intelligent statement of Bolshevism, the more clearly we shall see that it is essentially another name for Prussianism. It makes concessions to property, but it does not make concessions to slavery. It aims at slavery. It compromises with capitalism, but it does not compromise with coercion. Its ideal is coercion. There are a hundred proofs of this, but the essential proof is the very existence of the essay which I criticize. It is that a thinking man setting out to justify the Bolshevist movement actually has to begin by explaining that he does not aim at making men free, or even at making them happy. Now there is a great deal of truth in the suggestion that this modern sort of revolution is often a revolt against a revolt. The next revolution is much more of an attack on the last revolution than an attack on the old order. This alone is enough to show that it is not a part of a steady historical evolution and enlightenment. Such a man is not going step by step along a path of progress. If anything, he is kicking backwards against the pricks of progress. But in reality, there is not in all this ebb and flow of skepticism any progress at all. If the aim is avowedly different, there can be no question even of improvement. It is idle to ask whether Trotsky has regimented men more than Danton emancipated them. It is futile to ask whether Jefferson was as successful in creating happiness as Mr. Floyd Dell is in avoiding happiness. If he does not like the ideal of happiness, we can only comfort him with the assurance that in his own utopia, he will not have very much of it. If he does not like the mere stark idea of discipline or Prussian regimentation, we can only congratulate him on the chances of Trotsky giving him a good deal of it. But his explanation will probably have determined the sympathies of those among us who still think it a human ideal to be happy and a holy ideal to be free. End of section six.